Would you please join me in a word of prayer? Lord God, your kingdom comes into our lives and into our world with such conflict. I pray that you would show us how worthy you are nonetheless and that we would be willing to go through that conflict. And Lord, I pray that you would help me now as I preach. For I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Well, a number of years ago, I went to a Christmas party with uh, people that I knew fairly well and knew me well, and I went into the kitchen to get something, and there were several men in there talking, and they had probably had too much to drink, and it was a pretty lively conversation, and one of them was uh, particularly giving sort of a rant, and when I walked into the room, he looked at me directly and kind of caught himself, and he said, well, Reverend, it's the truth. And it shocked me a bit because, first of all, he doesn't, has never called me reverend, and I realized he was choosing those words because it wasn't what he said was true, it was that it was a true snapshot of what his heart thought about that topic, and it was not a good thing. And what he was doing is he was sensing the presence and the clash of the kingdom of God. A Christian had walked into the room, and he was not acting in a Christian way. I don't think that he is a Christian. I think if you are a follower of Jesus, you know what I'm talking about, where you get into a situation and people defer to you in kind of a negative way, like you're somehow the enemy. Or they'll say a choice expletive and then apologize to you for their mouth. It's interesting. I've been playing a lot of tennis lately with a whole group, a team here in Fleming Island, and not a Saturday morning goes by when somebody doesn't remind me what line of work I'm in. Not that I you know, do anything wrong, They're just, they, they feel the presence of a Christian in their midst, and not all of them are church-going men, and it makes them a little uneasy. This is very common because there's a clash of kingdoms, and anyone who's serious about their faith knows what I'm talking about. You know what that feels like. And it, it seems harmless enough, but it really is a clash of two kingdoms, And I guess it shouldn't surprise us because in Matthew 10, Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, that he would actually be the source of division between people, even right down through a family, you know, a father and his son, a mother and daughter, et cetera. He would, his presence would be a divider of sorts. And even as an infant, Jesus's life presented a challenge. Luke, on Christmas Eve, we saw, looked at the shepherds. Matthew looks at the Magi, and unfortunately, because of the way that pageants are put together, it makes it look like the shepherds just walked out of the manger scene and in come the Magi, but in reality, it could have been up to two years later. She was no longer by the manger, Mary was in the house, and based on what happens in this text, King Herod got information from the Magi and then went and executed all of the children that were boys that were under the age of two, because it could have been anywhere in that two-year period. So it's a very different event. Shepherds, commoners, Luke uh, really focused on the Gentiles, and Matthew focuses more on an educated Jewish audience. They know the Old Testament. They know what the prophets have to say. They know that they're waiting for a Messiah, and so he appeals to some of that. Now, in Matthew chapter 2, if you want to follow along, and what we've got going on here is the author is showing us a contrast of kings. The Magi, the, you know, as we sing, we three kings, although there were three gifts, we don't know how many kings or Magi there were, but there are kings from the east, and then there's the local king, King Herod. And one group, one type of king submits with joy and worship. 
the other lives in rebellion. And the thing about the human heart is this. The human heart is a throne, and a throne can only have one king on it. You never see a throne with two kings sitting on one seat. And the human heart is a throne, and it can only have one king on it. And the question that Matthew is asking us is, who is going to sit on the throne of your heart? Who is going to be the king of your life? Herod was determined to stay in control. He was so paranoid that he put these children to to death just to try to wipe out a possible rival. And I don't think he lost much sleep about it because, frankly, this was his pattern. He was, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, a merciless um, uh, monster, a pitiless monster, I think is what he says. And he had put his mother, his wife, three of his sons, half of the Sanhedrin, and a number of other people to death because he was in severe paranoia that someone would take him out. And he wanted to hold on to control so much that it's no problem for him to just send an order saying, go and wipe out all the baby boys two years and younger in Bethlehem. Now, thankfully, it was a small number. Scholars estimate about 20 to 30, probably. It wasn't like hundreds, but even one is terrible. It wrecked that family, you know, forever to have to go through something like that. There was a saying in circulation um, accredited to Caesar Augustus, but probably apocryphal, but it doesn't matter. It, it proves the point that he said it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. One was more likely to actually live. And this was true based on how atrocious this particular king was. So Matthew finds his awful behavior helpful to show us the contrast of the way that people respond to the arrival of the king of kings. The Magi traveled great distance over a long period of time and brought expensive gifts and knelt down before a baby and worshiped him. And the question becomes, will you or I do the same? Are we willing at great personal expense to kneel down before the Lord and actually give him the throne of our heart or give it back to him, let's say? Maybe you've never given it to him or maybe you've already given it to him, but we have a way of pushing him off that throne and edging back in in areas. The question is, will you re-invite him to be on the throne of your heart? In this text, there are several really good reasons why you should do so, why you should give Jesus lordship of your life. And the first one I want to look at is in verse 15. So the flight to Egypt happens. They're warned in a dream, go to Egypt. Herod's going to try and, try and kill Jesus, try to destroy him. And, and then it says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. It's not a direct fulfillment, but it's more like a type. It's a pattern of how God interacts with his people. God is unchanging. And the way that he interacted in the old covenant is similar to the way he interacts in the new covenant. And Jesus was fulfilling this pattern. So out of Egypt, I called my son, was a reference to when the, all of the Israelites were under Pharaoh's leadership and Moses, the deliverer, led them through the Exodus up into the promised land. What Matthew is showing us here is Jesus is a new kind of Moses, a better and perfect Moses. And the exile or the slavery is not to a political leader like Pharaoh or even the Romans who were occupying Palestine at this time. It's to sin. The exodus that Jesus is leading us through is is out of sin. He's leading us to a place of forgiveness and reconciliation with God. This is an incredible gift to us. And it alone is enough to make him the Lord of our lives, that he was willing to go to a cross to win forgiveness of sin 
exile out of sinfulness and into a new kind of promised land. A land, even as the opening collect for the day said, is a sharing in the divine life of God. So forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God. He deserves to be the king of your heart. That's one reason, because he's delivered us, brought an exodus out of sin. Another thing, verse 18. In verse 18, it says this. Then was fulfilled what was spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah. And it's in poetic, uh, it's set up like a poem because Jeremiah is writing poetry here. So very rich language. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now this requires some study because while Herod did really kill the babies, Rachel did not really weep for them or even for the children of God. Ramah is a town five miles north of Jerusalem. And if you remember back to when we studied Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar came in, conquered Jerusalem, and exiled the people and took them north and then over to the east to Babylon. They went right through the town of Ramah. And so Rachel figuratively, poetically, is weeping for the children of God from her tomb, which is in Bethlehem. She is crying for the children of God because they are no more. Okay, but what you need to understand is if you jump back to the Jeremiah passage, Jeremiah 31, it goes on a little further. I'm going to read three verses to you. Jeremiah says, Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now remember, Rachel was one of Jacob's wives, and the children of Israel are the children of Jacob. He was renamed that. Rachel was one of the mothers who brought forth some of the tribes of Israel. So we're talking about the covenant people here. They are no more. And then it goes on, though, and says this. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. In other words, this exile is not the end of God's covenant people or his interactions with them. There is a hope for the future. Why should you have Jesus be the Lord of the throne of your heart? Because he is a redeemer. He is somebody who takes brokenness, the brokenness of the world, the brokenness of exile, the the pain of judgment, suffering, sickness, fill in the blank, all the things that make life hard. He takes those and he works good from them. And of course, the cross is the greatest example of that ever. A a device of torture was turned to be the device of our salvation. Our sins were paid for on that cross so we could be forgiven, reconciled, so a hope for the future could come forth. So not only does he deal with sin, he deals with the brokenness of this world. So what brokenness have you experienced? A sickness, a death, a premature death, a broken relationship, cancer, A third of our cards turned in are for cancer. So many of us are struggling with that. There's brokenness in the world, but you all probably know Romans 8, 28, that God works good. He works through those things for good for those that love him. He's a redeemer. And that's what he's talking about here. The exile is not actually the end of the people of God. There is a future coming. So that's the second thing. Another thing is, I'm gonna go down to verse 23. Now remember, Matthew's writing to very educated Jewish hearers, and they would have picked up a play on words here. So when they return back to the Holy Land from, you know, hiding down there in Egypt, I'm talking about Joseph, Mary, 
and Jesus, they don't go to Bethlehem because one of Herod's sons is in charge and they're afraid of him and they're warned in a dream and so they withdraw up to Nazareth. Nazareth is where they go. And it says this, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, if you go looking in your study Bible to try and find in the prophets where it says the Messiah will be called Nazarene, you won't find it. It's not there. This is a play on words with a Hebrew word, nazir, which means branch. And it sounds like the Greek word, Nazarene. So you will, he'll be called a Nazarene because he will be the branch, the root coming out of Jesse, a new branch. This is Isaiah 11.1. 1. Out of the root of Jesse, who was King David's father, will be this branch that will go on and will be the king that David was unable to be. David pointed to something But through his line, the perfect king, the son of David, the branch of Jesse would come forth. So the prophets are talking about a perfect king who will reign forever. But Nazareth was an obscure place. Studying the the archaeologists think about maybe 500 people lived there in the time of Jesus. It was on a hill, and it was about the midpoint between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. So it's not like a port place. It's not a waterfront place. It was just an obscure little town, which frankly was a good place to hide the Son of God for 30 years as he grew up before he went public with his ministry. And you might remember in John chapter 1, when Jesus does go public, Simon and Andrew go and find some of their friends, and they say, come on, we found the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord's anointed. He's from Nazareth. And one of them, Nathaniel, says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Very sarcastically, because it was such an unassuming place. The prophets say he will be called Nazarene. Well, not exactly. Nazir, the branch, he will be the one coming out of the tribe of Jesse and David and be the perfect king, and he'll reign forever. That's the third reason I've got from this text, and there's probably more in here, why you should let Jesus be the Lord of your heart. Because he forgives sins and deals with your sin and reconciles you to God, because he redeems sickness and brokenness and all of the failures of this life and brings good forth out of that, brings forth good out of that in the future. It might be a short future or a longer future, but we have hope for the future because of what he says. And remember, the one who says, kill me and on the third day I will rise, the guy that does that and rises, you got to listen to everything he says. You can trust him to say, there is a hope for the future. Good things are coming. This is not the end of my interaction with my covenant people. So he forgives sins, he redeems brokenness, and he reigns forever. Whatever else might be on the throne of your heart will not last forever. But if Jesus is the ruler of your heart, if you make him your king, that will go on forever. And what a good king he is. So notice one last thing about Matthew. He's having this discussion about the infancy interactions of the two types of kings, the Magi and King Herod, and he'll be called Nazarene, it says, and then it jumps ahead 30 years and goes to Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist comes out on the scene, Jesus' cousin, and what is the first word? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's how John started his ministry, and that's how Jesus started his ministry. Repent, which means change your mind. God's kingdom is in your midst, and it does come with conflict. It's hard to lay down lordship of our own lives. It's hard to get off of that throne in our hearts and say, okay, Lord, I'm giving this back to you, or I'm giving it to you for the first time. I want you to be my Lord, not just my Savior, but also my Lord. This is hard to do, but consider the Magi and let them be an example for you.
They were seeking after him. They were watching him. And they went on a great journey to find him, and they brought expensive gifts and were delighted. It says, and when they found him, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The Greek is kind of a weird construction. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They were so happy to have found the king and delighted to worship him. And you know, if you're a Christian, you know this experience. When you first became a Christian, you feel like you found God, like you'd been searching for him for a long time and found him, only to realize that all along, he's been giving signs and wonders and drawing you and working in and around your life so that you would seek him. He knew the Magi were looking to the stars, so he put something up there so they would start to seek him. He does that in your life as well. He's, he's on your side to help you get to the place of laying down lordship of your life so that he can rule it and do so in the right way. He's a better lord of your heart than you are or anything else. There's only room for one king on your throne. We're going to sing, I'm going to pray in a second, then we're going to sing a sermon response song. It's actually the song, We Three Kings. And so as you sing that song, think about how God used the star to lead them, how God was pursuing them, how they brought their worship and were delighted to do so. Let that be a, a call to action for each one of us today. But let's pray. Lord, it is a difficult thing to hand over control to you. We like to feel like we're in control. We like to be in charge of our own lives. We like to do what we want to do. But we acknowledge here before your word and in your house that your way is better, that you are better. I pray for the grace for each one of us to make you our Lord or make you again our Lord. Help us to worship you in spirit and truth. Thank you for loving us. I pray this in the name of Jesus, the King of Kings. Amen. I invite you to